Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Are you looking to wager on all the big games in sports? Well, man, do I have the best deal for you. How about going with my friends at Bet Online? This is one of the busiest times of year. College football, NFL, hockey is starting, NBA upcoming, baseball playoffs soon as well. Plus, hey, the Ryder Cup so you can lay some money down on Team USA as well. 50% off your welcome bonus today with Bet Online. Head on over to betonline.ag. That's betonline.ag. It's a 50% bonus up to $1,000 with our promo code BELIEVE. That's B L E A V. B L E A V. Bet Online. Betonline.ag is the website. Bet Online, where the game starts. Fall is simply football season, and fans across the country are hoping that preseason hype leads to postseason success. In the NFL, we'll see if early Super Bowl favorites like the Chiefs, Eagles, 49ers, and Bills can hold off up-and-comers. And college football fans are wondering if Georgia will make it a three-peat or if top-ranked challengers like Michigan or Florida State can take home the national championship trophy. The college football and NFL seasons are defined by big plays, injuries, and coaching decisions. As a football fan, I also want to hear about the behind-the-scenes and off-field stories that shape the season. The football interviews and topics you hear on the ML Sports Platter are shaped by lessons learned at St. Bonaventure University. The online Master of Arts in Sports Journalism at St. Bonnie equips reporters and hosts for digital storytelling across the sports world. Students learn how to tell compelling stories through digital and traditional platforms. They are also encouraged to envision the future of sports journalism with their capstone projects. This 100% online degree builds on decades of academic excellence, and I'm a proud Bonnie, and I can tell you that you can join me in a growing list of notable graduates, including the New York Post's Mike Vaccaro and ESPN's Raina Banks. In fact, you'll hear from an accomplished alum or industry expert during video masterclasses in each course. Contact an enrollment advisor at sbujournalism.com. That's sbujournalism.com today to learn more about the online Master of Sports Journalism. That's sbujournalism.com. Hey guys, this is Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN, and you're listening to the ML Sports Platter. ML Sports Platter, back with you all over the major platforms, brought to you by Ken's Auto Detailing, Route 11 and Cicero, if you're in and around Central New York, make sure that you hit them up today. My goodness, they have a great staff to help you out on your boat, your car, your truck, your van, whatever the case may be at Ken's Auto Detailing. Get your vehicle detailed today at Ken's Auto Detailing, and a tip of the cap thank you as well to the Allen Angus Pub. Stumbling Monkey Brewing Company, Camillus Golf Club, and Trey Waluski of Under Armour Golf. Hey, make sure you buy golf and other apparel direct from Trey Waluski from the Under Armour world and get your gear for wholesale. No middleman markup. You can email them today at treypgasales at gmail.com. That's Trey, T-R-E-Y, P-G-A sales at gmail.com. Trey, P-G-A sales at gmail.com. A proud ML Sports Platter sponsor. Go with Trey Waluski today for your bulk order at Under Armour. Okay, it's out. Major bookstores and Amazon.com. I've been looking forward to this one for a long, long time. It's called Boston Ball, and the author is Clayton Truder. It's Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of basketball coaches. Clayton, congratulations. And of course, this one is on Amazon.com and all the major platforms where you buy books online and your nearby bookstores like Barnes & Noble. Clayton, welcome aboard. Congrats. I was doing great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me back on. So in this title, it says Boston Ball. And then in the middle, it's Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, 
and the forgotten cradle of basketball coaches. But Patino Calhoun and Gary Williams are Hall of Fame basketball coaches. So the cradle of basketball coaches, what do they represent? Why are they forgotten? Is there anybody else involved? And, and why is that such a part of our, I guess, lexicon of basketball history, this particular book that, that really details this group? Well, well, there's a few aspects to that. It's such a fantastic question. Um, for one thing, they, these three coaches are all really getting getting their um, get, getting their sense of their career ready in uh, Boston at the same time. I mean, it's Patino's first job. It's Calhoun's first job. And uh, Jerry Williams is the second head coaching job. He was briefly the coach at American University before he took over at Boston College in 1982. Um, Calhoun starts out at Northeastern in 1972 and Patino at uh, BU in 1978. These are three coaches who really begin to get a sense of what their uh, what their strategies and approaches to coaching are going to be like, playing in front of relatively sparse crowds, except for kind of in the case of Boston College, who had pretty good support from their alumni and, and, and student base. Um, additionally, a number of other great coaches come out of Boston in that time period. Tom Davis, who is coach, the coach at BC, later an excellent coach at Iowa, is uh, early in his career at this point. You have Mike Jarvis, who goes on to lead three different schools to the NCAA tournament. Um, he he uh, was originally a Northeastern grad uh, and taught at uh, Cambridge Ridge Latin School, where he, where he coached uh, Patrick Ewing before moving on to the college game, coaching at uh, BU, uh, George Washington, St. John's. Additionally, Kevin Mackey, who coached at Cleveland State and led, uh, led them to the first really Cinderella bid in the NCAA tournament, knocking off Bobby Knight's Hoosiers and getting a 14 seed to the Sweet 16 in the uh, 1986 tournament. So you have a number of, of uh, young coaches all learning to fly their trade in Boston at roughly the same time. One thing that I really love about college basketball is when a guy like Jay Wright or a Patino or a Bobby Knight, you know, or Gary Williams or Jim Calhoun, right? You, people don't realize where they started. And if you know college basketball and you cover the game like extensively or you write a book like yourself and many other people, like you, you know, you know, we know, but maybe the college basketball fan does not know. Um, when you were writing this book, how often did you think about that? You know, how a lot of these guys who, yeah, by the time they're at the end or during their career, yeah, they're making millions of dollars with shoe contract deals, endorsements, this and that. They're playing with unbelievable, you know, coaching amazing players on an amazing campus with unbelievable facilities. They've got it all, right? I mean, they're flying first class, private, whatever the case may be. But it wasn't that way right from the beginning. And when you're writing this book, how often, I know you're writing about it, but how, how often do you think about it? You know, maybe I guess the question is, how often do you did you think about it in the non-writing times? Like, wow, they had to grind too, you know? You know, I think I think you you pick my brain pretty well there because that's something I thought about constantly. That, that there's such a contrast between what it's like to be a major college coach in the 21st century and the very bare bones uh, experiences all these guys had. And it's interesting to me that none of them really talked about it much in their own uh, autobiographies. Uh, in Calhoun's memoir, he spends a little more than a chapter discussing his 14 years at Northeastern. He's there nearly as long as he's at uh, Connecticut. Patino spent five pages on his time at BU. And uh, Gary Williams spent four pages on his time at Boston College. So even these guys didn't do a lot of reflecting on it. I think that may be the mentality of coaches, that it's always what's, what's, what's on the table right now is what they're focused on. But uh, the degree to which the, the lean years of these guys are not covered it was, was remarkable to me. Um, I, I had the idea for the book, and that's when I bought all three of their autobiographies, just to, to check them out. And 
it just shocked me how little they'd written about it. And I felt like it was an interesting, interesting story that required some scrutiny. NIL transfer portal. It's probably a pain in the ass, you know, for most of these guys, it's probably the reason Jay Wright isn't in it. Rick Pitino still coaching. He's dealing with it. Uh, Gary Williams, Jim Calhoun didn't have to deal with it. How do you think those two guys would approach NIL? How do you think they'd approach the transfer portal? Because, and I got to tell you, Clayton, in addition to that question, I, I have found college basketball still to be really good. I love the tournament. I love my Bonnies, you know, covering Cuse and, and Bonna, you know, on a daily, as you know. But it's just like not as, wow, I can't wait for this 7 o'clock game tonight between Arkansas and Kentucky. I, I just, I, I, college basketball is just not doing it right now, and these rosters are all over the place. I feel the same way as a longtime fan. I mean, I was a little kid in the early days of the Big East, and to me, it felt like Patrick Ewing and Chris Mullen and those guys were there for a hundred years. Yeah. Like they were, they were as you know, when you're young, they were there as long to you as the guys in the NBA right, are right. Uh, in one place. So, so I certainly felt that as well. I think in terms of how these coaches would have dealt with it. I mean, Patino, I would say, very much has modeled his approach to like John Calipari's at mm. this point that he completely embraced the concept and and just did what he had to do in the new landscape. Patino, in a, in a kind of different way, was like that with a three-pointer. Like, all the other coaches very much opposed the transformation. All the other Big East coaches opposed that transformation completely. He's with Billy Donovan and Pop Lewis and all these guys on his early Providence team saying, if you, if you take a shot in practice that is not a three-pointer, you're going to have to run. So, like, so whatever is going on at the time, Patino is willing to, in a very mercenary sense, just adopt the circumstances. I feel like Calhoun would have dealt with it pretty well. I mean, Calhoun is, is certainly a survivor as a coach, I would say, and uh, I, I think he would have found a way to make it happen in this time period. Um, he's always been a very good delegator in terms of working with his assistants, and he may have, have relied on younger assistant coaches who were closer in age and experience to the players to be the guys that were really focused on those elements. Gary Williams, I think, would have struggled with it to the greatest extent. I mean, during his time at Maryland, he was the probably the most open critic of the whole AAU uh, dominance of, of youth basketball out there and really didn't want to deal with the AAU guys. I mean, if you look at that Maryland national title team, it was just a bunch of local kids. It was kids from Maryland and D.C. and Virginia. Yeah. He said, there's plenty of talent around here. I'm going to recruit these guys from coaches that I know. I believe the furthest away kid on that Maryland national title kid, national title team was a kid from Norfolk. I mean, he did not go far afield recruiting, and I think he would have a great deal of difficulty with this current landscape. Yeah, I remember that 0-1-2 team. Um, they were so fun to watch, and I remember them coming through Syracuse, and that regional final was one of the best regionals ever. Uh, I was sitting way up in the 300s at the Dome for that one and watching the likes of you know Juan Dixon and Lonnie Baxter and Chris Wilcox and Steve Blake and you know Drew Nicholas and those guys win that game against uh, a pretty good UConn team, too, that would, uh, in two years, win it all with Okafer and Ben Gordon, of course. Our guest is Clayton Truder, who has got a brand-new book out. It's online where books are sold, uh, including Amazon.com, of course, and nearby bookstores like Barnes & Noble. you got to get a, a copy of it if you're a huge college basketball fan. It's called Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. You know, Clayton, in certain areas of our country, regions, we sometimes have a phenomenon and then it just disappears for whatever reason, right? Northeast football, sure, there's football in the Northeast, but it's not like the 80s when Penn State was Penn State under Joe Paterno and Syracuse was Syracuse in the 80s under Coach Mack. That's just one of many examples. The city of Boston has been a pro sports town, clearly. Uh, it's a huge you know, college hockey town, clearly. But college basketball, it's kind of like, 
you know, like, yeah, this, this might be where these coaches started, but it's by no means a hotbed, you know, like there's, there's areas down South where it's college football, crazy SEC, et cetera, because that's been the religion and you're kind of born with it. But the NFL's kind of, well, maybe I mean, the West Coast has got their own thing going on, probably because of the weather, right? Why is it, do you think, that certain regions in our country just never adapt to something in the sports world or have something and then lose something? Is, it, is, there, a, is there a specific reason, a factor, a fan base? Why does that happen in the circle of the sports life? I think it tends to be what the city cut its teeth on. And, and if you look at a lot of those southern cities, there were no pro sports for a very long time. They developed their own sporting culture really around college sports, whether it was college basketball or college football. Uh, I think that certainly happened in the Midwest as well in a lot of those cities. I think in the case of Boston, even though it being kind of a quote-unquote college town, it's got a lot of relatively small colleges all over the city as opposed to one particularly dominant one in town, you know, like Madison, Wisconsin. Or certainly the case of Syracuse, you have Syracuse being the dominant athletic force in town, uh, whether it's, it's, um, whether it's Berkeley, California or, or Ann Arbor or wherever. The, there is one team in town and it is the college team. In, in Boston, college basketball was at best the fifth most popular sport. And they all had fairly small bases of support that were either just built around alumni and current students or really nothing at all. There were several games when Patino and Calhoun were coaching against each other. When there when there would be 300 people at the game, um, I mean these guys are both going to Hall of Fame careers. Um, in 1983, BU's team goes to the NCAA tournament, and their average attendance for the season was 675. Rick Pitino spent a lot of cold mornings in the late 70s and early 80s on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, just handing out tickets to games, just trying to get people to come see it. It was like being in a garage band coaching this Division One basketball team for a number of years for him, and he certainly got frustrated it and found, found a way out when he became an assistant for the Knicks under Hubie Brown and then later coaching at Providence. Yeah, I, I love that story. It's kind of like the Under Armour story, too, you know, handing out the samples and going bankrupt and <laughs> the car on the side of the road and all that from the USA <laughs> Today story I read from years ago. Rick, Rick Pitino is really, truly one of the icon amazing... I mean, all these guys are, I know, but I, I have Pitino in just this extra universe, this place that's just in another area, another universe of college basketball. When you're looking at taking Providence to a Final Four and Louisville and Kentucky to Final Fours and the amazing uh, job that he's done everywhere he's gone, and obviously he was Jim Beheim's first assistant, and a million different defenses, and he's the guy in March you never want to play because it doesn't matter what style you have, he's going to counter your style. We just lost Bobby Knight. Um... And I think Knight and Patino are kind of in that world from a unique standpoint, how they impacted the game, and, and just being giant, giant figures in the game. Which leads me to this. Who's on your college basketball Mount Rushmore? Do you have Calhoun? Do you have Patino? I don't think Gary Williams is there. No disrespect to him. But mine, Eileen, probably wouldn't coach K, Patino, and Bobby Knight. What do you say? I think I would go... Um, I, I definitely have Wooden. I think Wooden's clearly number one. He has just such a unique contribution to the game. I, th- I think I'd put Coach K on there. I think I think his contribution's so unique, too. I think maybe Patino and Calhoun would be my four. Possibly Bayheim, even, though. I, th- I think he would be in the conversation, too. To me, Calhoun and Bayheim's careers are very similar in a lot of respects. They're these two guys who basically stay in the same area. I mean, Storrs, Connecticut is the furthest away from Boston that Calhoun had ever lived in his life. I mean, he's lived within, like, a two-hour radius. He stayed at one school for a very long time. 
um, was incredibly successful there, became the king of town in the way Jim Beheim certainly was in Syracuse as well. So I think a guy like that on the Mount Rushmore, I kind of like a guy who really built it around um, one particular place in his career. And Patino, just having been such a is such a such a, such a unique career. But I think he's also on the Mount Rushmore as well. Clayton, my final question is this. I mean, what 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 do you hope people say about the book when they get done reading it? I hope they think that it's an origin story for modern college basketball. That both these three highly successful coaches who win six national titles, go to 13 Final Fours, win like 2,400 games, they're major figures for the last quarter century or so in the game. But also stylistically, I think they reflected a change. By the end of the 1970s, the college game was so dominated by the big man, whether it was Patrick Ewing or before that Bob Lanier or Artis Gilmore or Kareem or Bill Walton. These three coaches all found there was another pathway to the top. They all had very aggressive styles of play with fast-breaking and trapping and pressing, and they used that way, this kind of small-ball approach to get to the top of college basketball. And you saw what you ended up seeing in their later stops was not dissimilar from what you saw in Boston with those guys in the 70s and 80s. So I think you can sort of, in these guys playing in these small, kind of decrepit gyms, you can see the beginning for what happened with college basketball as March Madness came to dominate the universe in the, in the very late part of the 20th century. By the way, my golden retriever, Cooper, in the background, always trying to get involved in the interviews. And Clayton, you must know coming on this program, like, man, you know, ah, the host, that guy, he, he's a Bonaventure grad. I got to slip in that bobble in here somewhere, don't I? <laughs> Well, well, there's a lot of not, there's, there's a lot of the two other members of the little three in the book because Niagara and Canisius are in the same conference yeah. with uh, with uh, with uh, with BU and Northeastern. And, I mean, St. Bonaventure comes up to the extent like Niagara and Canisius are envious of St. Bonaventure getting into the Eastern Eight um, at, at that point. So that was that, that was kind of like we we got to get in some league. So they ended up playing with all these teams from New England. Yeah, St. Bonaventure he... comes up a little bit as well as Jim O'Brien. Uh, coaching there for a time too, and he later coaches at BC. Comes up in the book. Oh, Canisius and Niagara, man. I, I know the history. I, I do, and I just with Bonnie losing the other night to Canisius, and you've got Niagara, and you've got UB. I don't know, man. Those teams seem to get up for Bonaventure, and then like Canisius beats Bonnie, and then they lose to Cleveland State. They go twelve for twenty-four from three, and then they lose to Cleveland State. And I'm going. Look, I don't mean to be like the cop-out guy, but sometimes as a program, you got to realize when to just kind of back away and not play teams. You know what I mean? Like, you know sometimes that teams are just gearing up extra for you, and you you want to win every game, of course, but then there's the letdown part and all that, and, you know, the avoidance. I know that wasn't something that these three guys did, Patino, Calhoun, and Gary Williams, right? They never wanted to back out from any. They wanted to beat everybody. You want to talk about three of the biggest competitors of all time, huh? Absolutely. But both with Bonaventure and Syracuse face the same thing, that all these kind of Western and upstate New York teams want to treat them as a measuring stick. So for Canisius with Niagara, playing St. Bonaventure's the Super Bowl, when like Syracuse plays Lemoyne or whoever in an exhibition game, it's, you know, D-Day for Lemoyne to, to be playing in that game. So it's a very tough situation when they're playing those teams from, for who are also from the region, I think. Yeah, no doubt. Well, look, Pat Williams, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic and author of Who Coached the Coaches. That's a great book uh, as well. I've read that one. He says, Boston Ball is a fascinating journey through an underappreciated time and place in the history of college basketball. Meanwhile, John Gassaway, ESPN writer and author of Miracles on the Hardwood, The Hope and a Prayer Story of a Winning Tradition in Catholic College Basketball, another amazing hoops book that I've read. He says in the early 1980s, the proverbial pro sports town of Boston was home to three remarkable young uh, college basketball coaches. Clayton Truder brings that era alive and reminds us of a time when these future Hall of Famers were unproven, ambitious, and hungry 
for more. And that is exactly what this book is. And he's one of the best authors out there. I recommend this. Buy it for a, a, a relative, a friend for the holidays, or buy it for yourself. It's a must for all sports fans, all basketball fans, all college basketball fans. It's called Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. The author is Clayton Truder, available online where books are sold, including Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble and other bookstores nearby. Clayton, you're the best. Thanks for the time, my friend. Congratulations. Mike, you make me blush. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is Joe Convertino Jr. at CH Insurance. Over the years, the Orange have set a great example of teamwork, and it's what we strive toward every day with our talented team, clients, and partners. Follow us on social media. Go SU! We're in your corner. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.